Gangary the Podcast is made possible by the Ashland University Journalism and Digital Media Department. As Ohio's only converged media program, Ashland JDM is training tomorrow's journalists and media creators for media careers in the 21st century. For more information, visit Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department online at ashland.edu slash JDM. Or head to the JDM blog at ashlandmedia.blogspot.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that the podcast is once again available on iTunes, but you're going to have to need to resubscribe. Go to the iTunes store and search Gangry Podcast. Follow the option that is labeled Gangry Podcast, not Gangry the Podcast, and you'll start getting all the new episodes as we put them out. Now on to the show. This week, I talk with Lane DeGregory, a Pulitzer Prize-winning feature writer at the Tampa Bay Times. In early January, the Times published a long story by DeGregory about a five-year-old girl whose father killed her by dropping her off a bridge into the ocean. The Long Fall of Phoebe Johnchuck is a brutal yet powerful piece that shows how a sweet little girl was the victim of a child protective services system that let far too many children fall through the cracks. DeGregory won a Pulitzer Prize in 2009 for feature writing for her story, The Girl in the Window. Her work has appeared in Best Newspaper Writing four times. She has taught journalism at the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg, been a speaker at the Neiman Narrative Conference at Harvard University, and won dozens of national awards. As usual, we've linked to several of DeGregory's stories on our website, which you can find at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Lane, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Your three-part story, The Long Fall of Phoebe Johnchuck, was uh, published in early January in the Tampa Bay Times. Uh, Can you give a a, a synopsis of that piece? Yeah, the idea actually came from our publisher. Um, On January 8th of 2015, um, a 25-year-old man dropped his 5-year-old daughter off of the approach to the Skyway Bridge um, in front of a police officer. And so it was a pretty highly publicized story down here, um, and lots was written about it and lots of TV on it. The publisher said he wanted our audience to know more about who this little girl was and how this could have happened. And so he gave me six months, basically, to look into her life and her family. And I, I think I read you originally didn't want to do this story? I didn't want to do this story at all. In fact... I, I told, first of all, the managing editor no, and then I told the editor-in-chief no, I didn't really want to do it. And then the publisher took me out to lunch and said, here's what we want you to do. And he, he believed very strongly in it, and I guess in the end I had to trust his judgment. But it, it just seemed like such a a sad and, and hopeless story, and there'd already been so much coverage on it, and everybody, at least in Florida, already knew how it ended. And so I had a lot of reservations, but mostly the hopelessness of it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I was going to ask why why you didn't want to do it, but it is just a really a really sad story. Um, uh, but that that was mainly why you didn't want to? What did he say that uh, convinced you otherwise? Well, I've written lots and lots of sad stories, and but this one just didn't seem like there was any hope, that there was any good that could come of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I like writing stories that can make a difference or make people see things or, or think about things differently. And um, he, he said that he thought that 
people needed to know more about Phoebe Janchuk than just that she was a little girl whose dad threw her off the bridge, that she deserved to have her story told. Mm-hmm. And I guess that helped convince me, not that it was the publisher. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so uh, when, when did you start reporting on, on this in relation to the event itself? And then how did you start? What, what was the first thing you did? Um, so she, she was killed on January 8th. And I was assigned the story on June 1st. So it was, what, about six, six months later, five months later? Um, and we'd had other, many other reporters covering the story, but I wasn't one of them mm-hmm. from the beginning. Um, so in the first, the first day of June is when I started. They took me off these other stories I was working on, and I started in earnest. And the first thing I did was read all, I think there were 72 other stories that had been done in Florida, mm-hmm. in, in our paper and other papers. I mean, a ton. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing I did was uh, we had a researcher help, and I we gathered all the stories, and I sat there and read them. Um, and that took like a day. Um, and then I started making a list of um, people I wanted to talk to, um, everybody who'd been named in any of the other stories. Oh, we got the evidence file. I got the evidence file from the police reporter. It went through all of that. There was a big witness list. Um people who I thought would have been deposed by attorneys. Um, and I made a list of about 100 people that I thought I, I should contact. And then I started thinking about, like, okay, what's the priority? Well, the other reservation I guess I had about this story was I knew nobody would want to talk to me. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody, it seemed, felt guilty in some way or felt culpable in some way. And I thought, oh, geez, you know, why would they want to talk to me about this? Mm-hmm. So I knew it. I kind of needed a way in. Um, and... When I started prioritizing, I knew one scene I wanted to see was her um, kindergarten classroom, because Phoebe had just started kindergarten, Mm -hmm. and I knew I would want to interview her teacher and see the chairs she sat in and all that. And I knew because my kids were in school that there was only three more days of school. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So at at that point in time, I'm like, okay, I got got to get the kindergarten teacher first. I got to get in that classroom before they close it for the summer, and they change the stuff on the walls, and, you know, her cubby's not there, and... So I started out um, with going to the school and meeting the kindergarten teacher who was kind enough to let us come talk to her. And at the end of the interview, she said, oh, by the way, on the last day of school, we're dedicating um, a reading garden to Phoebe. And all the kids have picked out a book to put her name in if you want to come. So that was perfect. You know, all of a sudden we had a scene and and a reason to be there and, and something to narrate and photograph. And the other bonus of that was that Phoebe's family was coming. Mm-hmm. Um, her grandmother, her uncles, her step-grandma. And, and so they were all there at this little scene that we got to do a little daily story out of. Um, and we wrote about the, the kindergartners, you know, and, and the stepping stones and the garden. But the family liked the story, especially her grandmother. And so that's kind of what helped get them open up to talk mm-hmm. to us. Mm-hmm. How how hard was it to get to get people to talk to you for this story? I mean, even with the kindergarten teacher, was it fairly? Was she was she like, yeah, sure, come on over? Or did you have to kind of work to get to get people to let you in? Yeah, we had to, well, first we had to get through the you know the, the school spokesperson who happened to be a former Times reporter, <laughs> <laughs> um, and get permission you know to go to the school. She agreed to meet us, but not to do an interview. And mm-hmm. then after we talked to her for a few minutes, she said, okay. And, then we said, can we put you on camera? And she hadn't really talked about it. And, and um, 
afterwards, she said, God, that was really therapeutic. Mm. You know, that really helped a lot to talk about this stuff. And she cried a lot. And, um, you know, so, so she agreed to help us try to talk the grandmom into talking mm-hmm. to us. Um, and the grandmom was really hesitant at first, but she said, okay, if the kindergarten teacher comes with me, mm-hmm. I'll let you guys interview me. And so that was that was the second and probably the most important interview we got was getting the grandmom to let us in. Had had many of these people talked about Phoebe much in the time in, in the time that had passed? Did you find other people who were hesitant at first and then once they started talking found that it maybe helped them a, a bit? Yeah, and it kind of worked like a like a lovely game of or a, a domino tumble, you know, like, so uh, we got one of his friends, and then she would say, oh, you need to talk to the next one of his friends. Let me call her. Let me Facebook her. Let me text her. And so one uh, one person would lead us to another person, and, you know, the grandma brought in the uncles, and we went out for dinner with them, and then they invited us to their home. And so it, it kind of was, you know, a lot of times when I'm reporting, I kind of do a scatter shot mm-hmm. where I contact a whole bunch of people at once and, and hope somebody response you know right but but this time it was much more okay we get this person in and, and get them to to trust us and talk to us and then they'll lead us to the next person mm-hmm. um every, everybody wanted to talk about phoebe right. you know from from the beginning if you started with tell us about phoebe everyone was totally willing it was when you got to john and her dad and and the other parts of the family like that it got a lot sketchier mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. did you what did you uh, what did you tell you know, especially those people early on, like when you when you reached out to them and said, "I'm doing a story on," um, was it "I'm doing a story on Phoebe" or how did you frame that? Yeah, I kind of copped the um, publisher's pitch and said, "You know, I'm, I want to do a story about Phoebe's life mm-hmm. and all the people who touched her and were close to her. Um, I, I want to recreate who she was as a little girl, not just as a, you know, a headline." Mm-hmm. And the story does that, but it is also about so much more as well. Did you know going in that it was it was going to be maybe as big as it was, um, or take the uh, to to be more than just let's let's see who Phoebe was. Yeah, I kind of I, I knew there was a bunch of controversy because I knew there was calls to the Department of Children and Families about her before. Um, and also on the day of, I, I, they had had other, you know, daily stories about the lawyer um, for the dad had called both the cops and the child protection services the day before Phoebe died, um, or actually the day of the night that she died. And though, so that stuff had been in the news already. So I knew there was some, um, some public uh, responsibility for her death as well. Mm-hmm. Was it, was there anything that surprised you as you as you reported on this story that maybe you you weren't expecting? Yeah, there was a lot. I mean, one was just kind of how far back the dysfunction in the family mm-hmm. went. How many generations had not had mothers? Um, it, it, it was the grandmother's mother had abandoned her when she was four. The grandmother had abandoned the dad when he was four. The dad had dropped Phoebe off the bridge right after she turned five. You know, it was just weird. And then the Phoebe's mother had her mother had committed suicide when mm-hmm. she was a young girl, and so it was just so many safety nets that you would think a family would have somewhere in them. There, there were holes in, mm-hmm. and everybody we backgrounded. Everybody had, you know, background police backgrounds, 
um, criminal backgrounds, domestic violence backgrounds were just so much more than we had thought, mm-hmm. you know, that this little girl, because everyone kept saying, she, you never would have thought it, you know, she was the happiest little girl, she was clean, she was loved, she was well-dressed, she was telling jokes, we never would have seen it coming. But then as soon as we started looking into the police records, we were like, holy cow, how, how could they have not seen it coming, mm-hmm. you know? So I, th- I think that was surprising. And then a lot of the allegations about her dad really being a heavy drug user, um, crystal meth and spice, and having previous episodes of, of doing kind of manic things, um, nobody had reported that before. Mm-hmm. That was really a surprise. And then I think the thing that made me most angry that I found out was that no one had ever drug tested him. Mm-hmm. The, the night a police officer watches a man drop his daughter off of a bridge and no one drug tested right. him. Right. How how do you deal with that as a reporter when you see something that you just get so angry about, um, yet knowing you're trying to write, <laughs> you know, this idea that, that reporters have to be kind of objective observers, but yet you, I mean, when you see stuff like this, you do get angry. Yeah, and, and this story probably more than anyone I've ever written made me angry. And um, I'm usually, like, I are on the side of giving people the benefit of the mm-hmm. doubt and, and trying to find out why this bruised person was bruised, you know. But this, the more I found out about this guy, I remember calling Kelly Benham French, who was my wonderful editor on this, and I remember calling Kelly and saying, this guy just really pisses me off. He's mm-hmm. horrible. You know, and, and Kelly was like, oh, good, Lane. Now I know it's going to be a good story. Because, right. you know, it, it, it really takes a lot to make me um, think that someone is wholly bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in, in this story, everybody, his own family, you know, there were redeeming things about him, yes, but everything was leading up to evil. And, yeah. um there, that was frustrating. There's the the comments from his uncles um, that I think, if I'm if I'm thinking back correctly, are very early in the story, where they say he's just pure evil, and these are people who his blood relatives, and it was just uh, almost chilling. At age two or three, to think that of a child, that's, right. that's just haunting, you know. Right, right. You have this really powerful and yet horrible lead um, on the story. Uh, which you just come straight out and, and and lead with him him dropping Phoebe off the bridge. Uh, how, how did you how did you settle on that as being the lead? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I kind of knew from the beginning that's where I wanted to start, which is unusual for me. I usually putz around a bunch of different angles mm-hmm. and try them out, you know. Um, but I felt like because so many people already knew how the story ended. Um, I had to give that, put that out there. I mean, that was the most dramatic, climactic point of the story. Mm-hmm. But if, if nobody had known, you know, if it had been a different story where no one had known the ending and no, never been on TV or whatever, I don't think I would have had him drop her at the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I would have, I, I really wanted the image of him scooping her out of her bed. Mm-hmm. Um, because as a parent, I know that's the last thing anybody would ever do is scoop up a sleeping five-year-old on a school night from their covers and take them up to a cold night, mm-hmm. you know? So that, that just that image of this father gathering up his child in his arms and then letting her go was so powerful. Um, we, we toyed with the idea of not having him let her go, just having him kind of like pull over on the side of the bridge and then start the narrative. Mm-hmm. But it felt like we were tricking people because, um... I knew probably a lot of our, at least our Florida readers, already knew what was going to happen. Right. So I, I thought I should just get that out of the way. Mm-hmm. 
and then and then that pretty much sets up the rest of the structure. Can you talk about like what did the story always at least um, in its drafts um, resemble the structure it ultimately had, or did it change? Well, I guess the biggest answer to that is it got cut in half. Mm-hmm. So I wrote twenty thousand words, and they published ten thousand. Right. So it was significantly leaner than. Um, it was when it started out, mm-hmm. but Kelly and I talked from the very beginning about um, three parts. I kind of knew I wanted to be the, the before, during, and after. Mm-hmm. Um, and initially, we thought it was going to run in three different days in the paper. So I was trying to find, you know, good cliffhanger endings and, and um, cinematic beginnings. And then they decided to run it on one section, which was fine. But mm-hmm. the three parts were definitely, a, you know, part of the construct from the, the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, the writing process, what was that like uh, for this story for you? Was it a, a hard story to write? Um, did you find that – can you talk about that? Yeah, it was It was hard on a bunch of different levels. It was hard, one, because there was no hope. Because mm-hmm. usually I play to the hope. Like, usually, <laughs> you know, I, I know what I, I want readers to come away with feeling something could be different or something could be better or changed. Um, and that I didn't have that um, mm-hmm. that, con- that, you know, possibility with the story. Um, and I had, I actually really feel like even though I could have done more reporting for months, I I had too much information. Mm-hmm. Um, I had too many police reports and too many DCF reports and, and, um, too many examples of evil coming down the road to a step at a time, you know? And so Kelly did a really, really wonderful job of like, instead of, um, showing people five scenes that say the same thing, let's pick one and mm-hmm. explode it. Um, but that was hard too, because I didn't really have very many scenes, mm-hmm. you know, almost everything had to be reconstructed. I, I am a journalist who likes to witness right. and report and, and there wasn't hardly anything to witness, you mm-hmm. know? And so it was a lot more investigative than what I'm used to. Um, and then the main problem it had, which, which Kelly helped fix a lot was that I, I, I didn't know how to like get above the action. And, and sort of tell readers, like, here's what's going on, or, or take a break in all this bad, and let, let's think about something, you know. I'm, I'm not very good at that. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> so, so my I had a really long narrative that didn't have a break, you know, for you to sort of pause and go, damn, what, what does that mean? Right. Or how, how is he feeling? Or, you know, and so Kelly was super helpful. We, we, pretty, we printed the story out and spread it across my dining room table. And she took a highlighter out and highlighted, like, scene versus, like, narrator and scene versus narrator. And we tried to adjust the balance, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. So that yeah. if there were really long scenes, then you break it up or you shorten that part and then put a little bit more of a, um omniscient voice into it. Right, right. Uh, when you were re- recreating scenes, and I know you often, uh, you know, a lot of your work is... is highlighted by the fact that there are scenes that you have witnessed yourself. What was it? I mean, was it hard for you to recreate scenes in, in this story? And how did you go about doing that? Well, we were lucky that we had, I mean, a ton of reports. So, you know, from the time John was 12 and the cops first came to his house and he pulled the knife on his dad to the night at the bridge when there were live radio um, recordings of, of the policemen narrating what was happening on the bridge we had a lot of really good material you know um official type material Mm -hmm. which was totally helpful Mm -hmm. um 
the, the police officer initially gave us an interview, but then wouldn't let us follow up. Um, but I mean, having his notes from that night and hearing him on the radio frantically saying mm-hmm. they just dropped a child over the bridge, you know, all, all of that kind of multimedia stuff was super duper helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, so it was funny because, well, not funny, but some of the police wrote really descriptive reports of incidents, and some of them just do shorthand. Mm-hmm. But you would find some in there that actually wrote these long, well-written narratives, mm-hmm. you know? And, and um, so a, a lot of the recreation came from those. Right, right. Maybe the, the Tampa police officers write, or St. Petersburg police officers write those long narratives because they read this, the Tampa Bay Times so often, so they've got that built in for them, right? That must be it. We trained them well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Lane, we're going to take a short break right now. Um, We will be back with more from Lane DeGregory. This is Gangry the Podcast. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department is the only fully converged and integrated media program in Ohio. JDM majors apply converged skills in practical, hands-on labs using state-of-the-art hardware and software content creation tools. And they do it all alongside award-winning faculty who double as industry professionals. Recently chosen as Ohio's best non-daily student newspaper, The Collegian covers our campus and beyond. Ashland's 3,000-watt radio station, 88.9 WRDL, broadcasts local news, sports, talk, and today's best music to mid-Ohio and to the world on WRDLFM.com. Meanwhile, AUTV20 brings campus news, sports, and events to life in more than 12,000 homes. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department, creating converged digital media professionals for the 21st century. Find more information and apply today at ashland.edu slash jdm. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis, and I'm talking with Lane DeGregory, who wrote the piece, The Long Fall of Phoebe Johnchuck, for the Tampa Bay Times. Lane, I saw that Kelly Benham French edited the story. Uh, can you talk about how that came about? Oh, I got so lucky there. Um, so we had been, our enterprise team had been without an editor since January. Um, and they were looking for a new editor, but I was reporting to the managing editor who had a million other things to do. Mm-hmm. So when they assigned um, me this story in June, um, I said, who's going to edit it? And they kind of went, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then about two days later, um, the editor came up to me, editor-in-chief came up to me, he goes, hey, I got an idea. Like, how would you like to work with Kelly again? And, you know, Kelly used to sit next to me mm-hmm. um, when we were writers together. She edited a couple of my stories, you know, five years ago, six years ago. And I just love talking stories with her and working with her. And so she was able to work between writing her own, finished and writing her own book mm-hmm. and teaching at Indiana. Um, she was able to fly down twice and then they flew me up there once so we could work a little bit in person. But a lot of it was done, you know, over the phone and mm-hmm. Google Docs. Um but it was it was a tremendous uh, delight to work with Kelly, and she knows me very well. So, you know, you can sort of say things to your friends that you might not say to to an editor you don't know very well, but could be really honest with each other and uh-huh. uh, piss each other off, and it was still okay. Right. I remember um, I, I just, I, and I know Kelly is such an amazing editor. Um, she's also an amazing writer and reporter as well. But um, I, I remember she showed uh, my class. She skyped into my class, one of my classes once. Uh, the notes that she gave Michael Cruz on the last voyage of the bounty. And you see 
um, this great writer and, and Cruz, and you see all the notes that she has written on, on, on that piece, and you're like, how could somebody who's as great as Cruz have so many marks on his paper? Uh, is it the same way when she works with you? Oh yeah, oh yeah. It's 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 um, daunting at first, and you're like, what do you think? I don't know what I'm doing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> because Kelly, I think because she's such a good writer, she tends to write through things more than other editors, mm-hmm. you know. So some editors will just make notes or or suggestions. Um, Kelly actually likes to write through sections and and tops and rearrange um, sentences and things like that. And so it's it's more heavy-handed, I guess, than some other editors, but it's so good. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's really she's really amenable to, like, if, if you don't like it, it's fine. You mm-hmm. know, she doesn't force it on you. She she rewrote the, the lead of the story um, about, I don't know, a month or two into our, our collaboration. And um, said, what if we, you know, we... we what if we start start with him looking over the edge of the bridge after he's already dropped her? And I was like, no. And she wrote this whole top, the beginning of it, and I just told her I, I didn't think it worked. That it wasn't what I wanted to do. And so she called it the thing Lane hates. And everyone knew know, <laughs> she's like, just email it back to me. The thing Lane hates, you know. <laughs> but but it was never like I think we have to do this. Right. You know, it was like, what if we try it or or you know, and and I, like I said before, she's just really really good about getting above the action and the mm-hmm. narrative and finding places to sort of pontificate on, on what's going on or what the meaning is. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, you mentioned earlier that this the original draft of the story was uh, uh, 20,000 words long. How? I mean, it's one thing to, to find instances where you have five, five, five scenes or five mentions that when you could have one, um, but... That, that can't get you all the way down. That can't cut a, a piece that long in half. How, how did you and Kelly work to get that, all to essentially cut that, that massive manuscript in half? Yeah, and it was actually probably more than that because she was adding these other sections while I was mm-hmm. cutting the narrative, mm-hmm. you know? So I would be like, oh, I cut 5,000 words. She's like, okay, I added 1,000. Go cut 1,000 more. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was, it was some back and forth like that. Um, but uh, we, we cut a lot of characters, mm-hmm. you know. There were um, five different single moms that John and Phoebe lived with during mm-hmm. the last year of her life, and I think we ended up quoting two of them. Right. Um, there was a whole piece on the mother's boyfriend, um, and we ended up cutting him out of it entirely. Um, so, you know, making those decisions that we could use the information from those people because it painted the bigger picture, mm-hmm. but we didn't need to name them all or describe them or go home with them or hang out at the Burger King with them, mm-hmm. you know, which is what I spent a lot of time doing. <laughs> right, right. Um, what Was there anything else that, that came, out of, came out of working with Kelly on this story that stands out in your mind? Um, I, I'd never had an editor you know, look at scene versus uh, meaning passages before and sort of highlight them out that way mm-hmm. so you could find a balance. I thought that was really helpful and, and creative. Um, I, I appreciated that a lot, you know. And she was really good. Uh, I was a little bit angry about the arbitrary 10,000 words. I was mm-hmm. like, well, where does that come from? And she kept saying, I don't know, it just can't be longer than that. That's, you know, that's that's as long as readers are going to want to spend with it or whatever. And, but it ended up being, I think, just right where it was. I don't think I would have wanted as much as I wanted to put into it if mm-hmm. I was a reader. I think she was right about about that. Right, right. Um, 
one one thing that's remarkable about the piece, and from my standpoint, because I've read it online, is this this the entire production on the website is is really amazing. Um, there are some great photographs and some amazing videos as well. Um, how much does it help you as a reporter to work with um, such a great photographer? Yeah, that's a big part, and that, and Cherie was the other gift. You know, I kind of feel like because they knew I didn't want to write this story, they gave me like the best editor and photographer they could find <laughs> as, a, as a prize. You know, right? Um, and Cherie and I'd done many, many stories before, so just like Kelly, we we know each other really well. We're very, very comfortable together, and mm-hmm. she's. You know, one of the the few really great photographers who's also a really really great journalist, um, and so she you know comes with her own list of questions. She wants to read all the documents. She wants to sit in on all the interviews, and she's very involved in the storytelling, mm-hmm. um, not just the visual part of it. You know, um, and the other thing that we did with this one, which was so cool, um, I'm 48 years old. Uh, Sheree is older than I am, and. They paired. They, they gave part of the visual presentation to these two women in their twenties. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think one of them was like twenty four, and the other one maybe twenty two, um, to put together the video and the online presentation. Mm-hmm. And so we got to work with them on you know the storytelling kind of part of it, but they got to show us all these cool visual things we could do, where you know the documentary um, could link with the audio to the police calls, and they could layer it mm-hmm. over you know, video from him in his cell, his prison cell. And then on the the um, webpage, you can click and hear, you know, hear the frantic call from the lawyer to the DCF and right. hear the 911 recording and see the documents from um, the Department of Children and Families if you want to read the whole thing. So it's got all kind of layers to the presentation, mm-hmm. which I, I've never done a story that they gave it that many pieces, you know, components of it for the multimedia. Yeah, yeah. Um what uh, what's the feedback been like on the story? Um, the feedback has, has been a, a lot of outrage at the beginning. You know, people who just were incredulous that um, so many different law enforcement agencies and state agencies were aware of the trouble in Phoebe's mm-hmm. life in the past and, and, and didn't step in to do anything. Um, so I, I think outrage initially. Um, I heard from a lot of um, DCS former workers who said they were glad I had done the story because the system was really broken mm-hmm. and it showed where the holes and the flaws were. Um, a, a lot of um, a lot of teachers. Um, in fact, her baby's kindergarten teacher was one of the first people to post on our Facebook, and she said none of us knew what was going on in, in her life outside oh, of the classroom, yeah. and thanks for you know making us more aware that we have to pay attention to these kids' lives at mm-hmm. home. Um so yeah, that it was it was interesting. Different pockets of people that responded. Mm-hmm. Um, it, uh, it it did really well on the web too. I think I read the it, it did get a lot of yeah. page views, and a lot of people read it all the way through. And it seems to me like it it really did like shine a light on on a problem. Yeah, the the thing that was cool, I mean, it got 120,000 views as of Tuesday. I don't know what it is now, but Mm -hmm. 120,000 views online. But they did some matrix where I guess an average reader spends one to two minutes on um, a story on our Tampa Bay website. And this was an average of eight to ten minutes. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was pretty cool. People actually must have been reading it or at least watching the good videos all the way through. Well, I think that 
in, in a lot of ways shows the promise of, of what good long good long form narrative can do. If if you give somebody a story worth reading, they'll stick with it um, all the way to the end. And and it's not necessarily just how many people are going to click on the story. So maybe it's a maybe it's an omen. It's a good sign that that we sh- we should be doing more of this type of stuff. Well, and the other really cool thing, exactly, and that that is it's really gratifying because it wasn't. I guess I think part of the way it was displayed, it wasn't too daunting. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it had white space and it had other elements that right. didn't look like oh. <laughs> I appreciated Sorry, I better, the. You know. I appreciated the big the big font. <laughs> so I yeah, have to exactly. <laughs> Well, the other thing she did, I don't know if you saw this, but the woman, Alex Sanchez, I'm, I swear she's probably 23 years old, she invented this thing where if you stop reading, it says, do you want me to remind you? And right. it's like, we'll send you an email that links you right back to the place in the story where you stopped. Right. So you don't have to keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. And I had so many people tell me that, like, oh, I couldn't read it all at once, but I bookmarked it and I came back and I read the part two. And yeah, I just feel like that, that might have helped, you know, people spend time on it is they knew they didn't have to commit to the whole thing at once they could come back which was a great feature right right um i know uh I, for some reason i don't know why maybe it's not it's not it's an unfair comparison but this piece kind of reminded me of the girl in the window um mm-hmm. because it is about a girl who who was really let down um in, in many ways um did did was was there any similarities that you, that you saw and did the story remind you of that? It it did remind me of that. I mean, of course, that was one of the first things I thought of. But the thing that was so striking was for Danny, for the girl in the window. You know, no, she was invisible. Mm-hmm. Nobody knew she was there for all those years that mm-hmm. her mom was neglecting her. Not, the neighbors didn't know. You know, the school didn't know. She'd never been to a doctor. She was really completely invisible in this little house room in this house. Whereas Phoebe was like everywhere. Mm-hmm. She'd been in 15 different houses in, in five years. She had lived with five different moms and she had relatives, you know, four generations of relatives. She'd been in school. She'd been in preschool. She'd been on play dates, you know, and it was, she was out everywhere and, and no one ever thought that she, that her dad was a danger to her. Like, oh, he was a danger to everybody else. You know, we kept hearing people say, oh, we knew he was going to kill somebody, but he was never going to hurt Phoebe. So that was the striking difference to me, was like Phoebe was so known in the community by so many people, and Danny was so invisible. Mm-hmm. And yet Danny lived, and right. Phoebe died, right. you know. And so, yeah, that was... And there was no hope for Phoebe. For Danny, there was the promise that maybe she could live a, a, an enjoyable life mm-hmm. down the road. You mm-hmm. know? Have you have you stayed in touch with Danny's family? Um, very cursorily. She um, I, she moved to Tennessee. We did a follow up story about three years after uh, the initial story um, came out, and she hadn't really progressed very much at that point in time. And she was starting to go through puberty, so things were actually kind of regressing. Um, I did hear from her case worker that her parents got divorced recently mm-hmm. and Danny's living with her dad, um, just the two of them together in some kind of farmhouse in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, what, these are two such really incredibly heavy, uh, stories. How, when you're reporting this stuff, how do you not get depressed or do you get depressed <laughs> as you're doing these stories? Well, the Danny one was depressing, 
but it was also uh, so hopeful right, that, right. that it kind of balanced that out for me, at least. Um, I, I thought there was such a good chance that she would live at least a, a loved life with the Levos, you know, and, and she did. Um, such a, was such an improvement. But this story really, it, it really came at a bad time for me mm-hmm. um, because my oldest son was graduating from high school. So in, in the six months I <laughs> reported this story, and I'm not trying to say what was me, I was just in this emotional place, right. you know. My, my oldest son graduated high school and then left for college. And, you know, my youngest son started his senior year and then got into college for next year already. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I'm I'm kind of mourning the loss of both of them <laughs> right. and trying to process, like, who am I if I'm not their mom? Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time that I'm looking at a, a, a family or a father who threw away this little girl that he said he loved, that everybody mm-hmm. thought that he loved. So I think because of my own station in life and my mom, <laughs> my mom um, emotions, it made it more depressing mm-hmm. than maybe it would have even a few years ago for me. Right, right. Um, of course, you you don't only write sad stories. Um, I'm thinking of some of the encounters that you've written in the past, um, back back when the newspaper was doing those. Uh, one that I always make my students read is the one about the rodeo guy. Oh, the no the ifs, ands, or yep. buts. Uh, and I always make them read the the story about the little the young boy buying the Valentine's card um, for Aww. his first girlfriend, and they they love that one. Um, do you, do you find you're still able to find time to do stories like that? I kind of missed that in the last six months because they basically said, you know, we don't want you doing anything but Stevie because we have a deadline. We want to run it, you know, by the anniversary mm-hmm. um, of her death. So, yeah, I wrote one column during that time about my son leaving for college mm-hmm. um, just because I needed to write something for me. And then they had a space <laughs> right. for a first person column. Um, but I, I do hope to get back to do some more encounters. I love doing those. I love the the tight framework. I love that you can do, you know, humor and a, a, a small scene that, that says a lot more. So, yeah, I've got a couple of, of those I want to work on. Mm-hmm. Are you, uh, what else, what else are you working on right now? Well, I took the last couple weeks off after this came off because I really, I worked straight through from Thanksgiving to Christmas mm-hmm. and, and didn't have any holidays in there. <laughs> so I'm just getting back into things with the new editor and uh, we pitched about probably 20 stories on Tuesday at a story meeting, um, so I, I think one of them I really want to look into um, is the silver alerts. I don't know if they have this where you guys are, but with like an amber alert for a missing kid, it's for mm-hmm. a missing old person. Okay. And they put a sign up, you know, on flashing highway signs, and Florida's got, you know, more old people than anywhere. And, like, so many of them, like 25% of people with dementia go missing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I want to follow a couple cases of, of silver alert and try to do a narrative about whether that system's working and how people can help. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds great. I'll be looking forward to reading that. Lane, thanks so Thank much you. for joining the podcast. Oh, it was really a joy. Thanks, Matt. I've been talking with Lane DeGregory, who wrote The Long Fall of Phoebe Johnchuck for the Tampa Bay Times. As usual, we've linked to several of DeGregory's stories on our website, which you can find at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter at Gangry Podcast. That's at G-A-N-G-R-E-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. We're also on Facebook, so check us out there too. 
Gangry the Podcast is produced in the studios of 88.9 WRDL at Ashland University and is made possible by the Department of Journalism and Digital Media. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.